Welcome to the Light Shine Church Sermon Podcast. I'm organizing pastor Rob Douglas, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. This morning, we will be talking about the foolishness of dancing with idols. Brilliant French aristocrat, political scientist, and historian, Alexis de Tocqueville traveled through the United States in the 1830s, taking extensive notes everywhere he went. He noticed what he called a strange melancholy that haunted the American people, even though they were in the midst of so much abundance. He attributed this melancholy to a belief that prosperity could satisfy their longing for happiness. But de Tocqueville noted that this hope was illusory because the incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. While sticking to the French, 16th century theologian John Calvin famously called the human heart an idol factory. And Timothy Keller took this from Calvin and wrote an entire book on it that the guys in my small group read a few years ago. And now while it's true that there are still places in the world today that actually worship traditional idols, it's also universally true today that we humans excel at internal idol worship, manufacturing idols of every kind from within our hearts. Idols are not by nature bad things, and this is really important to take note of. As a matter of fact, they're often really good things that we deify or place at the very center of our lives. They're things that often crowd and push God out of the center. So we're capable of turning these really good things into ultimate things, things that we might wrongly think could satisfy us or give our lives meaning and purpose, granting us security and peace. So what I want to do here is just pause for a moment and use that chat feature there at the bottom of your Zoom screen, right? Listing out some things that we what are what are the good things that we turn into idols right what are the things that we make and turn into ultimate things that push god out of the center of our lives if anyone just list them out what let's see what comes up here on the chat do we have any thoughts or ideas on this yeah from the Arnts, we have wealth. That's a good one. <laughs> Politics, Eric and Michelle there. Comfort from the Wittens. Good. Yeah, there's all kinds of things that we could list. And I'm sure these things are going to keep coming uh, as we go. Here we go. Success, uh, sports. Oh, sports. That, that hits a little too close to home, Eric. Uh, yeah, relationships time um yeah jeff i'm not even gonna i'm not even gonna say that one <laughs> yeah jeremy work um this list is probably going to continue 
to grow. In our biblical text that we're looking at today, we will watch as the ancient Israelites turned away from God by constructing and worshiping the statue of a golden calf. For those of us that have been around the church for a long time, we might not have looked at this since like the Sunday school era of our childhoods. A golden calf might seem so ridiculous to us. We're far too sophisticated for that. We're too smart. We know better than that. We would never do that. But of course, to say these things is to fall into the trap. Our idols may be more sophisticated. They remain hidden. And therefore, they might be even more dangerous because we might not even be aware that they exist. So here's a truth about the idols of the heart. You may dance with them for a day, which is what we're going to see the Israelites do, but they lead down a path that's destructive. The Israelites would throw one crazy party. They would have the time of their lives for this one night, but de Tocqueville and Calvin and God are all here to remind us that these counterfeit gods, these idols that we produce, ultimately disappoint in the end because they can't provide the things that we ascribe to them. So for those of us interested in doing the hard interior work, <laughs> I'm going to throw up four things on the screen here. And this comes from Keller's work in Counterfeit Gods. And he says, if you want to identify the idols of your heart, answer these four questions. And this is going to be tough. This is hard work. And so what I'd like us to do is we just think about these things. We're going to listen to this incredible and complex story while we consider these four questions. What occupies your mind? How do you spend your money? What are you living for? What are your most uncontrollable emotions? And this is where Keller says we might discover some of those hidden idols of our own hearts. So identifying our own idols, this is only part of the story and part of the hard work today. The other part is this, how will or how does God deal with idolatrous human beings? In other words, if our hearts are idol factories, what is in the heart of God? And how will this God deal with us idol makers. We'll hold these things in tension as we listen to this incredible story that comes out of Exodus 32. And here we go. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, come make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, take off the gold rings that are on your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears. They brought them to Aaron. He took the gold. He formed it into a mold and the cast an image of a calf. 
And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. <laughs> the Lord said to Moses, Go down at once, your people. Notice that. God calls them your people. Your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have acted perversely. They've been quick to turn aside from the way that I commanded them. They've cast for themselves an image of a calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. Now let me alone so that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. And of you I will make a great nation. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn against your people? Whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with mighty hands. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn away from your fierce wrath. Change your mind and do not bring disaster upon your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Jacob, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying to them, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of heaven. In all this land that I have promised, I will give your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on the people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Moses had gone up Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. He'd also gone up to receive the instructions on building the tabernacle or this portable tent where God could live among the people and the people could worship God properly. So for Moses, this is like the ultimate mountaintop experience. Forty days and nights in the presence of God. But meanwhile, back at camp, things have gone horribly wrong. Moses has been gone a while. And the people begin to wonder, why has he been gone this long? What is he doing? Is he even going to come back? Is Moses even alive? And as their anxiety grew, they became impatient. They began having doubts, not just about Moses, their leader, but doubts about God. Where was God? God seemed to have disappeared along with Moses. And so left alone in the wilderness with all kinds of questions, their doubts become murmurs. These murmurs become complaints until they finally decided that they needed to take matters into their own hands. If God ghosted them and Moses abandoned them, then they better find some other gods to lead them out of this wilderness mess that they found themselves in. And so they go to Aaron, Moses' brother, second in command, and they ask him to make gods for us. 
Here it's worth acknowledging one of the complexities of this story. The Hebrew Elohim is the same for God and gods, singular and plural. So the question is, were the people asking for an image that represented Yahweh, which would be a violation of the second commandment? Or are they asking for new gods to lead them, a violation of the first? While we can't say for absolute certainty, it looks to me like Aaron the people pleaser seems to think that this golden calf actually represents the Lord. Either way you slice it, this is not good. <laughs> Egypt, the place of slavery that they were fleeing, they worshipped a number of cow gods, as did the Canaanite people, which was the land toward which the ancient Israelites were headed. It was proving to be more difficult to get the Egypt out of the Israelites than it was to get the Israelites out of Egypt. They had said with one voice, this is a quote from scripture, the Israelites had said this in one voice, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. <laughs> Just think about that for one moment. They promised to do everything that the Lord had said. This doesn't last very long. At the first sign of trouble, they fall apart. Aaron asks for their gold earrings um, in order to make the calf. Now you might be wondering, where does a wandering group of runaway slaves, where do they get this gold? It was plundered from Egypt on the way out. After the plagues, the Egyptians were begging them to leave, even offering them gold if they would just leave them alone. The next question you would have to ask yourself is, well, what is this gold? What was it supposed to be for in the first place? The building of the tabernacle, the home for God and the place of worship for the people. This is a flagrant misuse of God's good gifts. So they build this golden statue to worship. They throw this huge party to celebrate, which evidently got completely out of control. I'm not going to get into the details of the Hebrew word for revel, but just use your imaginations for a moment and we'll keep this like PG. God sees what's going on and is not amused. He tells Moses that he better get going because your people are making a hot mess of things. God says your people and Moses says back to God, no, these are your people. They're arguing over who's messed up people these belong to. And so God is so hurt that God just wants to be left alone to stew in anger against this stubborn, stiff-necked people. Stiff-necked describes a farming animal that is too stubborn to wear its master's yoke. This is like, this becomes the Bible standard way of referring to the Israelites. And so the question becomes, what will God do with this rebellious, stiff-necked people? Now, reminiscent of the flood story, another good Sunday school one that we might remember, God threatens to destroy them. And he says, God says, I'm going to start over with you, Moses. The whole exodus, this whole thing is in jeopardy right now. God no longer wants this disobedient people. And yet, in the midst of this judgment, 
there are signs of divine grace. I think without a doubt, the most surprising thing in this whole story is the role of Moses. Moses intercedes on behalf of the rebellious people. Moses begs God to relent. Moses begs God to show compassion. So I just want to finish up by showing us what exactly Moses did, all right? And here it is. First, Moses appealed to God's relationship with the Israelites, despite their sinfulness. They, Moses, insisted they were still God's people. Nothing they could do would change the fact that this is still your people, God's people. They were still God's children, and nothing could change that fact. Next, Moses appealed to God's past investment. He reminded God just how much God had already done for them, how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And if they were destroyed in the wilderness, it would all be for nothing. Next, maybe is the funniest one of them all, Moses appeals to God's reputation. That God's reputation in the rest of the world, it matters. Moses says, you don't, you don't really want the rest of the world thinking these terrible things about you, do you? Destroying this people would be bad for God's reputation. That one is really interesting to think about. And finally, Moses appealed to God's mercy and compassion. He saves the best one for last. The Bible says over and over and over, like the mantra of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scripture says this, God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses begs God to remember the everlasting covenant to be faithful to the promises that God made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to remember the promises to make a great nation. All of this, all of these promises of God, the promises of the covenant, they're all in jeopardy right now, depending upon what God decides to do. And so Moses, to me, as I was reflecting on him, seems like a pretty interesting role model for the church for us today. Moses knows God's character. Moses urges God to be faithful to the promises. It's fascinating that Moses is reminding God of God's own character, of God's own nature. And maybe this is one of the church's jobs is to continue to bear witness to God's faithful compassion and mercy. I'll bet we could find a lot of places today all around us where we could be doing that, challenging God to show compassion and mercy. This should drive us, of course, we're, some of us come out of a Reformed Presbyterian tradition, in our tradition, this would drive us toward confession for the ways in which we too dance with the idols that we've made in an attempt to crowd God out of the center 
of our lives. It would drive us to ask for forgiveness and challenge God to continue to be slow to anger, to continue to be abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, not only for ourselves, and I think this is critical, but for the stiff-necked people of our world, <laughs> for all of those around us, and God knows that we could use some compassion and some mercy in our current COVID and divided political climate. You can dance with idols for a day, but they will not satisfy. Their wilderness times, like we're all going to be in these wilderness times ourselves. We may be in it now. The time we are currently in for many of us seems like 2020 could be the most difficult year ever. We will at times feel as if God ghosted us. This is the way the Israelites felt. We'll feel at times that our leaders may have abandoned us. We'll wonder where have they gone? Are they not considering the real needs of the people. Are our leaders not considering the most vulnerable among us? But our hope, like Moses's, was in the God who keeps promises, the God who forgives sin, the God who shows mercy and compassion even to idol makers like us.